1: A Living History Production
3: I'm Peter Hart And I'm Gary Bain And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast Hello and welcome to the podcast I'm Gary Bain And once more And it's getting a bit boring really I'm joined by Peter
2: Hart Joined at the hip I'm afraid
3: well, there's worse places to be joined to you. Oh. <laughs> oh, God.
2: <laughs> right. Now, what are we doing today, Pete? Well, we're doing a second, five and four-fire. 4 five four, four.
3: Fife and 4 five. Oh. <laughs> However you
2: pronounce it. Um, uh, and fine body men, I think we'll leave it at. And we're talking about their advance uh, through France into Belgium. Uh, so this is uh, pretty well August 1944. We're on about now. Um and uh, where we left them we left them we left her with a cliffhanger a cliffhanger which of course is a complete like most cliffhangers is a, a non sequitur sausage because um um, we're not going to talk about that at all, because uh, they have nothing to do with the Falaise Gap, the 5-4-5-1, so uh, we'll, we'll mention it in passing. So what's happened to the 5 and 4 Fire Yeomany? Where are we? What
3: are they doing? Well, you're quite right. It is August. And on the 12th of August, 1944, after a rest period out of the line, the 11th Armoured Division... Fine body of men. ...which they were part of, exactly. was sent to relieve the 15th Scottish Division in the Lassie region. Where's that, Gary? France. <laughs> Meanwhile, great things had been underway great as things. the American Third Army had switched its line of attack to push north from Le Mans to uh, Alencon, uh, which was taken on the 12th of August before pushing on to Argentan. Now,
2: something else is happening, Gary, because from the 14th of August, Operation
3: Tractable. Hang on, how come you get Tractable and I get Alencon?
2: now what happened Operation Tractable is the 1st Canadian Army and 1st Polish Armoured Division are trying to uh, smash through uh, determined German resistance in the Falaise area Uh, what's Montgomery's overall intention Gary you're an expert on this
3: oh yeah absolutely (laughs) well his intent was absolutely clear to trap the German 7th Army in Normandy by cutting their line of retreat to the east the cliffhanger as you've referred to from the Operation Bluecoat episode was... Could they do it? Well, (laughs) let's find out. Bit of a disappointment for everyone, because, uh, as usual,
2: the men of the second 545 Yeomanry are totally unaware of the larger picture. And this is the truth in war generally. Uh, I think it's a point we can't make too often. Let's make it
3: again. Nobody knows what's happening. (laughs) Now, at this stage, the method of advance could often be roughly summed up as two-up, one in support. Thus, the armoured brigade would have two regiments leading with one in support. Each of the regiments would have two squadrons pushing forward and one squadron in support. Now, mostly
2: because of the nature of the, the country, the Bacage, the, the, the they had to use the roads, uh, travelling forwards on parallel roads, separated normally a couple of miles apart, but heading in the same general direction. So, if you put your fingers in front of you and move them forward, sort of that's what it would look like uh, from the air. My hand, yeah. No, your hand, hairy and wrinkly, and stubby, little tiny stubby fingers. Yes. Anyway, on 14th of uh, August, the 2nd, five fourth 4th, 4, 4, moved back into action. They're advancing towards La Roque and ultimately he- heading towards Vassy. And uh, wireless operator Jack Edwards, who we've encountered before, is in a tank commanded by the newly promoted Corporal Pat Ketteridge. And you're going to be Jack Edwards, 4-Troop B Squadron. What do you got to say for yourself,
3: Jack? We set off along the road, Mr Dark leading. We were second tank. As we were going along, I could see in the fields to the side of us our dead men from the 15th Scottish, still lying about from the recent operations. Another half mile or so, and there was a couple of knocked out Churchill tanks and some more of our dead lying about. It used to give me funny feelings seeing our dead. I used to cast my mind back to the moment when they were shot down and think, what would they be thinking at the time?
2: Yeah, that's quite. I find that a, a, an interesting and, and quite touching quote. Uh, now, as the uh, as the uh, the five and four 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 approach the village of Laroc, there, there's a, a great deal of trouble with some German anti-tank guns. Uh, and eventually, it was decided to send A Squadron to sweep round the left flank uh, of the La Roque uh, crossroads, uh, and this was uh, successful. So uh, they surprised the German anti-tank gunners, and it, and they they. Capture some forty prisoners. But this, and this, this is a terrible quote that I'm going to do now. For a change, I'm going to, you've got to switch it about. Can I, can, I be, can I be pinky?
3: Yes, you can be pinky. And you are going to tell us what Major Douglas Pinky Hutchison of A Squadron says. And this is, this is just awful. And this is the reality of it, isn't it, Gary? Uh, Sergeant
2: Gale's tank was knocked out by either a, a, a self-propelled gun or tank, which then withdrew. We recovered his tank and towed it into the lager. It was burnt out. All the crew in the turret had been killed. I was upset about Gail because he was such a quiet, unobtrusive fellow, but thoroughly effective. Somebody I liked and respected. Respected. I had to take his charred remains out of the turret and bury them. And, and this is scraping things out and it's, it's awful. Because remember the tanks are used again. They repair the tanks them back into action but think of those poor uh, all the crew in the turret have been killed so that's uh, the commander the loader a wireless operator and the gunner dead and uh, Hutchison he may have been landed gentry and a somewhat amusing figure in a sense but uh, that's what he had the guts to do go in there and clear out the tank
3: now, as the Germans retreated, they left plenty of signs of their passing. The, cu- uh, the country was literally littered with debris. And this is what Trooper John Buchanan of 4 Troop A Squadron says. There were dead horses, hundreds and hundreds of soft vehicles and trucks, mostly horse-drawn vehicles, the odd tank. All their armoured stuff got away. The stuff that we were wanting, they got away. Smoke, everything was on fire. Dead bodies, dead horses, cattle dead or dying all over the place. The legs were sticking up and blowing up like balloons. Oh, the smell. If you had inadvertently hit one with a tank track, it released the gases and the smell. They talk about skunks, but oh, Jesus. You had to have bags of water to try and wash it off or wait for a rainy day. You had to be very careful you avoided going over dead horses, or people for that matter. The roads had to be kept clear, so they just had got one of these bulldozers up and shoved them off the road, dead, dying, or wounded.
2: It's another terrible quote, but sadly, it, very it, graphic. It is. But in my mind, there came a certain old friend of ours as, uh, as we were listening to the tale of the appalling stench released by the dead horses and cows. What came to your mind?
3: Nothing. Not Fred? No, he 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 never smelt. Fred never farted. No. Now, are you the, looking
2: at Fred through rose-tinted spectacles? I might be. The
3: advance continued, and on the 17th of August, they reached the Rui River, uh, just Rui? just to the east <laughs> of La Carnelle. You're getting all
2: the good ones today. I am. <laughs> now, after a wreck, it was decided, and this next bit is. St- just an amazing series of interlinked quotes which i, th- I think i hope you enjoy readers uh, listeners or whatever you are um because uh, the, the, after a wreck they, they decide they could get across the river they use a scissors bridge that's a, a sort of uh, portable bridge it's brought forward and dropped across and at about 1800 on the 17th of august uh, two troops of a squadron are sent forward with a company of the third monmouths now with them is wireless operator jack edwards and driver cliff pember and they're now they've changed it's not ketteridge anymore it's uh, they've got a new commander in the tank
3: and who is it it's lieutenant alexander Munro, who was as you mentioned a recent reinforcement from the lothians and border horse now once they're across the river
2: they move forward to support the infantry and once again you're going to be trooper jack edwards four troop b squadron
3: the infantry were being mortared and we were told to advance and we did uh, we'd done about 400 yards. Lieutenant Munroe was in command, and he headed towards a gap in a hedge. There was a big explosion in front of us, so he back- backed us off a bit, and then the machine gu- he machine-gunned the hedge on both sides of the gap. He went further along the hedge to the left. Then he started moving towards the hedge again, but a voice, I don't know whether it was a troop leader or some other officer, warned him that he was getting too near the hedge. He ought to come away from that hedge. He started reversing. You can only reverse slowly. We were sort of at an angle, so we weren't getting very far away.
2: Now, that... that um, uh by this time, most of the experienced members, are, remember he's new, of his crew, are getting worried. They're coming under mortar fire. And there's a serious risk, Gary, a Panzerfaust, uh, the, that bazooka, as you would call it, uh, with your American tastes, uh, coming from the I mean, there they could be anywhere in that bloody hedge, couldn't they? And I'm going to be uh, the driver, the driver who was Cliff Pember, uh, obviously, uh, same squadron, B squadron. And he says this. This lieutenant was a bit of a death or glory boy. We were going into an orchard, seemed like it, a lot of trees, I can remember. Hearing over over the intercom, one of the fellows inside the turret, get your head down, but he didn't take any notice of him. Uh, and, And then suddenly they're hit, and once again, you're Jack
3: Edwards. I was looking through the periscope, seeing what I could see. There was a big explosion behind me, somewhere at the back of the tank. So I turned round, and I saw that the turret seemed to be full of flames. I did my very quick draw on the fire extinguisher and started spraying where the flames were coming from. They eased off somewhat. Amazing. I think they were coming through the engine bulkhead. I guess something had hit us at the rear end of the tank. I guessed it was a bazooka. All the crew had disappeared except for Lieutenant Munro, who was slumped over the back of the gunner's seat. I leaned over to have a look at him, and I thought, well, he must be dead, because his blood was spattered all over the gun shield. He had a big hole through his neck, but it wasn't bleeding. I thought, if it's not bleeding now, he must be dead. Now, the driver, Cliff Pember, he's only got one
2: thought in his mind. Th- these, these quotes just link together so... Per- well, not perfectly, because you know it's, it's at 70 years later, but it's amazing, this sequence of quotes. Uh, he's only got one thought on his mind. Guess what that is? Well, to get out of the tank as soon as physically possible. He's only human. Yeah, who can blame him? And uh, Cliff Pember says this. When the tank caught on fire, I really didn't know what happened. I thought we'd got hit by a bazooka and the turret crew had been killed. The amount of flames that was coming out of there. The only thing I was concerned about was getting out. I couldn't get out of the escape hatch at all. That's the one through the, the, the bottom. Uh, and he says that there was not enough ground clearance. I couldn't get out of my hatch because the gun was over it. All I could see was smoke and the terror. I said to Viv Holden, get out, Viv. He wouldn't get out. So I went over the top of him and out, down by the side of the tank. Now, this, uh, Viv, he, he's worried about because if you get out of the tank, you get shot by the Germans who've just bazooked you. So that's what he's worried
3: about. So what happens, uh, what happens well, next? Well, Holden time? does jump out of the tank. But after, as, but, after Pemberton. But as he did so... He was uh, badly hit. And Trooper Cliff ben- Pember goes on to say this.
2: Viv got out and a sniper got him right up the back. Must have got him as he turned round to jump down. I got Viv ran by the side of me. And every time he groaned, you could hear a burst of machine gun fire coming like that. There's a tow bar on the side of the tank. So I got on top of the bogey. Bogey. bogey sorry, I'm hanging on there. There I was. Every time my old Viv was groaning, the machine gun bullets were coming. I was all right, keeping my feet off the ground. So he's just clinging on. The,
3: yeah. Above now, a, just Edwards a, was still in the Sherman. His only thought was to get away from the hedge and any German infantry that might be lurking there. And this is what Trooper Jack Edwards says. The turret happened to be in the right direction so I I, I could wriggle through into the driver's seat. I started reversing. I thought, I'll try and get a bit further away from the hedge before I get out. Taffy Pember, who was outside, shouts, Stop! Stop! I stopped and he said, Viv's hurt and you're taking the tank away from him. We've been shot at as we bailed out. Get out anyway because the tank's on fire, which I knew. I said, one, two, three, and I shot out like a streak of lightning onto the ground outside. Now, I quite like uh, the Edwards headwinds because we, we
2: we like irritable people and he's got a totally irrational uh, thing going on
3: in his head. He's annoyed. And he's annoyed. Who's he annoyed with? Well, he's annoyed at the actions of the now-deceased Lieutenant Munro in putting him into danger, at Viv Holden for being wounded, and himself. So he's just generally irritated. So be
2: irritable, Gary, as Jack Edwards.
3: I looked around and I felt quite annoyed because our tank was there on its own and the rest of the troop were about 100 yards or more behind us and we were there poking about in this hedge all on our own. There was Tuffy and myself behind the tank. I was also annoyed at Viv Olden lying on the ground pretending to be badly hurt. I couldn't see any blood coming out of him and I was annoyed at myself because I thought, if I had just thought on, I could have brought some smoke grenades or something
2: out. So when he jumped out, he should have picked up some smoke grenades. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Um, now, at this t- point, there's no sign, you'll notice, of the gunner. We've talked about everybody else in the crew, but not the gunner. Um, what's happened to him? Well, they found out later he jumped out and simply ran like hell to get away as far as he and as quickly as possible. Now, I want to make this clear. People might say, well, this isn't exactly fitting together. Well, of course it's not. It's because this is incredibly dramatic and exciting. It's all happening in a matter of seconds. And of course it doesn't fit exactly. But what a picture we're getting of of of, of what it's like, eh? Uh, anyway, so uh, he's gone. Now, the two remaining survivors, that's Jack Edwards and Pember, the, the, uh they try and tend to uh, Viv Holden's wounds.
3: And You're going to continue as Jack Edwards. Taffy says, let's have a look at Viv. I got Viv's field dressing out of his pocket, and between us, we started taking his jacket off. We got it half off and still couldn't see any sign of blood. Just then, there was a long burst of machine gun fire came under the tank. Viv shouts, Margaret, darling, I love you. Goodbye. I said, Taffy, they've got me in the legs. He said, they've got me in the legs as well. Lots of wounds over both legs. They weren't bullet holes, they were bits of ricochet, bits of rock shot up from the ground and all sorts. The legs were riddled, wounds all over them. I sat down with my back to one of the bogies. I still had this field dressing in my hand. There is actually two dressings in one, so I used one on the worst wound on one leg and one on the worst wound on the other leg.
2: Now, uh, a sad little thing as to that was that uh, I looked it up, and his wife wasn't called Margaret. And that's not funny. It's just uh, that's not a bit of funny business. That will be he's misremembered the name that said uh, almost certainly, All the yeah. Uh, But again, poor old Viv Holden, uh, and that that that's uh...
3: anyway. uh, Where are we now then? Well, it seemed hopeless, but then the hopes of rescue were briefly raised, and uh, Jack Edwards says this. While I'm doing this, the troop firefly arrives and stops nearby. The sergeant shouts, Get on the back of my tank! I thought, we haven't got a lot of chance of that. He'd no sooner said it when I saw something come over from behind the hedge. Shot over! And it just missed the front of this firefly, and it exploded somewhere in the space between the firefly and us. Terrific bang! The firefly went smartly into reverse and got out of it. This explosion shot up a big cloud of smoke and dust, Viv Holden was lying on the ground, he made the most piercing scream and he came completely off the ground, umpteen feet in the air and then dropped back again. I presumed he was dead or too far gone to worry about. I saw this cloud of smoke and dust and thought, that'll give us cover. Hurry, let's get out of here. I said, come on Taff. We both staggered to some rocks about 25 yards away, not very big ones, but we dropped behind them, then started to crawl to the other side of the field. It wasn't a very big field.
2: Now, just a bit of explanation, a Firefly, as many of our listeners will remember, is the 17 pounder version of the uh, Sherman... And uh, and uh, a bit more about the death of Holden, Well, the the, the he's, he must have been wounded a load of times by now. I feel very sorry for Viv Holden. Um, and uh, and uh, presumably that was a bazooka another bazooka shot uh, at the uh, that had disturbed the firefly, or a Panzerfaust, or, or sorry, it's yes, a Panzerfaust. You are so technically correct these days. Anyway, uh, Jack Edwards, they've both been wounded um, uh, badly by this time. In a sense, uh, they try their best to get away. They're running back, and again, you're Edwards edwards i'm doing everything you are doing everything not as much as jack edwards did in 1944 Gary. that's
3: true jack edwards we both crawled across the field and got to a hedge at the other side there was an infantry patrol hiding behind the hedge one of them showed his face in a gap and said this way mate we called through the the, the gap he'd indicated the other side of the hedge i tried to stand up to walk and i couldn't just fell on the ground We both settled down on a grassy bank the other side of the hedge. The infantry disappeared. The tanks moved off. It was just very quiet and it went dark. An infantry medical corporal arrived. He looked at us, cut our trouser legs off and did a good bandaging job on us. I put dressings on but they dragged off as I'd been crawling. Whether it was the wounds or the shot or loss of blood or what, I don't know. I just felt tired. I could have gone to sleep. I was at peace with the world.
2: Now, the medical corporal disappears, but he, he, he's only gone to get a stretcher. He comes back and, uh, and with, with, with another stretcher and they take Cliff Pember, uh, that's, uh, Taffy. I think he might be from Wales. Mister Chance there, but this is too no no silly accent, so it's too serious. And then they come back for Jack Edwards. Uh, so, uh, but by then it's pitch dark, and he's carried back to the Scissor Bridge we mentioned earlier, across the river, and it's about six hundred yards that he's they carry back back. Uh, if, if, bigger boy, that's quite heavy. And then taken in a scout car, right to a proper dressing station. And here, who does he meet there, Gary?
3: Well, he has a brief reunion with his gunner who'd got away, uh, but was being treated for burns to his hands. Both would be evacuated back to the UK for more prolonged hospital treatment. Behind Edwards and Pember, the German resistance had soon ended.
2: Yeah, this is the pattern of the fighting in the package, isn't it, Gary? We've talked about So you get a spasm of machine gun fire, a a splatter of mortars or, or Nebelwerfers. You get shots from the deadly Panzerfaust. Uh, or you might get a Panzer, an actual Mark IV, or a, or a Tiger, Gary. They're all Tigers, aren't they? Or a Panther. Uh, or it might be one of the, the self propelled guns, the Stugs. But that, that, they
3: don't tend to hold long, do they? No, hold-ups were frequent, but progress continued. Overall, it was evident that the Germans were staggering. Staggering. Falaise fell on the 16th of August, and over the next few days, the Falaise Gap was closed although several of the German divisions had either slipped through or forced their way out before it was finally sealed on the 21st of August.
2: Yeah, uh, it, it's quite interesting. 50,000 men, 50,000 men, Gary, of the uh, German 7th Army are made POWs. And although 50,000 escaped, they'd left much of their heavy equipment. Uh, they'd left behind some 10,000 dead. Their roads are blocked with wrecked vehicles, hordes of dead horses. And what does a German logistic system depend on?
3: Well, it relies almost
2: entirely on... Uh horses not dead ones though no not dead the interesting thing is and when people say the british army british army in the first world war 1918 is based on lorries not on horses yeah, that's that, there's a, a
3: point so the battle of normandy was finally over and it had ended in a crushing defeat for the germans now it was time for an almost unopposed advance to the seine river and at this point we'll take a short break On the 22nd of August, they continued to push to the east, coping with the threats of heavily mined roads often blocked with lines of felled trees.
2: So you get, you get little little frustrating delays. Uh, I suppose you often have to wait for the Royal Engineers, the sappers, to come forward, clear away. Uh, but not so much direct German opposition, would you say?
3: No, and the 2nd, 5th and 4th fire yeomanry, along with the rest of the 11th Armoured Division, were then given a few days' hard-earned rest. And not just rest, is it? Because what else is happening during any of these rest periods? Well, new officers and reinforcement drafts arrived to replenish their ranks. The men were growing accustomed to new faces. Yeah,
2: you've got to remember that Goodwood was only uh, sort of four, four weeks before. They, they, this is all happening, very concentrated period. First action was Epson. That, that, this isn't...
3: This is all... T- yeah, wow... Now, on the 28th of August, they sprang back into life with the 11th Armoured Division now assigned as part of 30 Corps, recently reinvigorated (laughs) under the energetic command style of uh, Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks. When
2: I was young, he used to be on the TV. I think I
3: remember him, yeah. He,
2: he was famous for being able to speak uh, without notes and things. Now, they're then they're galloping, galloping in their tanks. <laughs> this is real cavalry-style stuff, isn't it? They're, what are they doing? They're pushing through to the Seine. Uh, they cross at uh, the, uh, the town of Vernon. Uh, what, is, what
3: is going on? What, what, what is, uh, what's happening? Well, this is part of Montgomery's mission for the 21st Army Group to push northwards and destroy the remaining German forces in northeast France and Belgium. He intended to secure the vital Channel ports in the Pas de Calais area and the Belgian airfields essential to maintain aerial domination. What's the next really big objective, would you say, then, Gary? Speaking as as a, as we've established the
2: international expert on Normandy
3: and the campaign. Yes. Uh, that will well, be Antwerp. It's not, it's not in Normandy, is it? No. <laughs> so that would be Antwerp. Yeah, well, the well-known uh, port of Normandy. <laughs> yeah, now that offered a, a potential shortcut to their ever-lengthening lines of communication and supply, which was going all the way back to... Normandy! Yes.
2: Yeah, of course. Uh,
3: uh, so it is important, Antwerp, isn't it? Yeah, now once this had been achieved, Montgomery planned a thrust eastward into the Ruhr, heartland of Germany. Oh, now something's
2: happening though, isn't it? There's a bit of a change in, uh, explain to me what exactly is going on.
3: Well, yeah, as uh, in the next couple of days, there's going to be a change in his status and uh, the Supreme Allied Commander Dwight D. Eisenhower took direct overall control of operations. Now, you this know, is done to, to I reflect... I want to point
2: out, you deliberately deliberately put that in. Put D in, in, yes. Because you know I hate Americans doing that. Yes. <laughs> Hello, American listeners. We yeah, love you, you all. you just put
3: that he's um, Dwight Eisenhower. Yes,
2: bugger his middle name. But I though. put the D
3: in. Yeah. Now, this is done to reflect the increasing importance and size of the American element in the Allied armies. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, are they, they're they playing an Incredibly important role now uh, and uh, they need yeah. so so Montgomery what, what, is he still commanding 21st Army Group I think he is isn't
3: he yeah but he's no longer the man who set the perimeters of future operations but he would be working as an equal alongside General Omar Bradley commanding the 12th Army what's group what's the initial Um oh uh, commanding the Twelfth Army Group and under the overall command of Eisenhower. Now Bradley had actually reported into Montgomery yeah, at this it's point. It's a
2: change in status, but it, it's reflecting that the development of the campaign and, and the America increasing important to the Americans. Uh, do you think uh, Montgomery, uh, well known, passive, quiet, modest individual?
3: So you're making reference to the uh, somewhat prickly and arrogant Montgomery Montgomery well, well, finding, well, well. <laughs> finding it difficult to accept, but he was given some minor compensation as he was was uh, promoted to field marshal on the 29th of August.
2: Yeah, and uh, I mean, Montgomery's always a difficult subordinate, but uh, he he continues to play an important role. uh, But now in the debate over allied strategy, he's no longer setting it, is he? He's he's not, uh, or grand tactics if you prefer, he's no longer setting everything. He's now merely submitting to higher authority, which is Eisenhower.
3: Yeah, but he is involved in those discussions. He is, he is. Now, the 30th of of August would live in many of the men's memories, (laughs) as it proved to be truly a hard day's night.
2: see what I did there.
3: Yeah. First, they made the journey to Hetemesnil, meeting little opposition, although en route... They got the chance to shoot up a convoy of German vehicles and securing several prisoners.
2: Now, by this time, so during they're already done forty mile advance. And uh, what what do you think happens to tanks after about forty miles? Well,
3: some of them had already run short of petrol. Now, in the normal course of events, they would have lagered at Heter Mesnil, uh, but instead they received orders to push on overnight all the way to Amiens in the Somme area.
2: Yeah. Uh, now this this is the this is the Horrocks. Uh, we said he was a bit of a live wire. No, it's true. It, it is true. It's not Horrocks. It's <laughs> Ray. He made me genuinely laugh. No, sorry. This is General Horrocks. Ah. Uh, and he, he, he thought that, that there was so, so little res- res- resistance that the 11th Armoured Division could press on. Press on, pilots, so to speak. Uh, regardless, at night. Now, what do they normally do at night?
3: Well... They normally lager, as, as was mentioned, but the idea was that they might totally surprise the Germans and bounce them out of Amiens before the bridges over the Somme were demolished.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the officers of 2nd, uh, Five Four five, they're, they're caught on the hop because they're not expecting this. Uh, uh, and uh, news of an all-night advance was probably the last thing they wanted to hear. And I'm going to be Lieutenant William, or he doesn't use that much, but Lieutenant Steele Brownie, commanding four troop A squadron. He says this, all I wanted was sleep but had to await orders for the next day. When they came we were flabbergasted for we were to move at once and drive through the night to Amiens. I don't know if Corps Commander Horrocks actually said there's a moon tonight but he did write later that this was a curious way to employ an armored division. If he had been in Heter's Mezzanil, that place that you mentioned, Gary, he, he would have heard similar opinions expressed more bluntly. 30 miles in the dark, can't see to fire, can't hear, who's reading a map, we had problems. He also wrote later, it has a shattering effect on the morale of the enemy to wake up in the morning and find that some hundreds of tanks have penetrated deep into their positions under the cover of darkness. True. So he can see what's has got. He doesn't want to do it. He can see the problems against Steele Brownlee, but he accepts
3: that it might be worth it. The advance was a sound tactical vision, perhaps, but one hell of an undertaking in practice. They would be travelling in the pitch dark on minor twisting roads with multiple junctions on an unreconnoited route. The one saving grace was that there was minimal German opposition, And you're going to tell us what Lance Corporal Roy Valence, who was in 4 Troop, A Squadron says.
2: We were to replenish, bomb up and continue advancing all through the night. Extremely unusual. The first time this had ever happened the opposition at this stage was comparatively light we all thought it was a jolly good thing we could we we could <laughs> Steel Brownie browned in but yeah we could see the end of the war almost in sight we started off at about 6 in the evening we were just told to keep nose to tail keep in touch with the vehicle in front and we wouldn't lose the way in the dark quite late in the evening the column was stopped After a while, I became suspicious as to why we were stopped for such a long time. I walked ahead and found that all the crew in the tank in front of me from another troop was was sound asleep (laughs) and there was not a vehicle in sight in front of them. I knocked them up, (laughs) went back to my tank, overtook that tank and just swanned on in the dark, hoping I would catch up. Needless to say,
3: we did. Well, not necessarily needless to say, is it? But uh, now who's at front of the whole column? Well, that was Corporal Byron, who seemed to be able to see and map-read in the dark as his performance was much complimented in the regimental history. He made scarcely a single mistake. Well, Gary, 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 I thank you as
2: John Buchanan for True Base Squadron, have a different perspective of... Yeah, of, uh, but slightly more jaundiced perspective of uh, burn, Burns... Uh, or however you pronounce that name, (laughs) Burns uh, Performance, that night. Go on, John
3: Buchanan. This is what we were geared up for, the breakthrough. Somebody punched a hole and we went through it. Our chance came and we weren't going to miss it, even day and night. You had to follow the tank in front. There was only a wee light to follow. You couldn't put your headlights on, more or less nose to tail. One laugh was the lead tank. The boy must have been bamboozled. Instead of turning right, he went straight into this field. Of course, the whole British army followed him. We were actually kind of sleepy then, and everybody followed him. He went round in a circle in this field and came out. It took a wee while to sort ourselves out. Uh,
2: in many ways, uh this is an army thing. If you're driving in a column behind a leader... uh it, it, no no effective lights. It, it's more difficult than being in front. What, what is the, you must remember this from when you were in the army, there's a well-known military phenom, phenomenon, phenomenon, da, 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 phenomenon.
3: I think you're referring to the fact that even if the front vehicles are going at a reasonable speed, then those at the back of the column will have difficulty in keeping up. It's sort It's, it's strange how that works, isn't it? Well, like? it also happens on foot. Yeah, you know, it's not just vehicles. But worst of all, what could be worse? The men are exhausted. Tidy. Indeed, some resorted to taking their uh, Benzedrine tablets to try and stay awake. Speed. Some of them resorted to taking their Benzedrine tablets.
2: (laughs) That's why they spoke after us. Ah, I remember the world of rock and roll. There were lots of people who spoke like that.
3: Anyway, not me. (laughs) I like beer. Now, over this madcap advance, it was inevitable that more and more tanks would run out of petrol and they'd be left behind by the wayside. Now, however, some of the crews found it an absolute benefit to be um, momentarily out of the war. Yeah, waiting for the fuel lorries to catch up with them. Because the lorries, of course,
2: the B echelon are following up with the fuel. Uh, why, why might that be? Well, it's because if they
3: stopped, and they often did run out of petrol in a village, what would happen? Well, when the villagers woke up, uh, they gave them a great reception. And this is Trooper Ron Forbes, as well as 4 Troop. Sorry, B one You're quite right to correct me. Thank you, Peter. I admonish myself. Bertie Moir had red hair. That sounds like a song. Bertie Moir had red hair. Uh, we got into this village, and suddenly we ran. Suddenly we ran out of petrol. We were lucky to stop in a village. Some fellows ran out in the wide open. The villagers came out full of the joys of spring, and there was one red-haired girl attached herself to Bertie Moir. I think he fell in love with her the most enjoyable thing of the whole war was seeing these delighted people coming out and kissing you and whatnot. Buried wine emerged from gardens. Some of it was too mature for us. We were warned not to get ourselves too inebriated because we wouldn't be fit for duty. The column eventually caught up. And that's reminding me of the stories of the Great War, where they were marching through villages and drinking wine and beer and becoming completely sozzled.
2: <laughs> I love the idea of Bertie Moyer uh, and his red-haired
3: floozy. That does sound like a song, doesn't it? Like a football ch- chant. Bertie Moyer has got red hair. Doo da Now, as the tanks neared Amiens... Come the dawn, Gary. ...it was evident that the Germans had indeed been taken totally by surprise, and several vehicles were shot up. Uh, even more important was the capture,
2: in a sense, of, uh, in ambience of General Heinrich Eberbach.
3: Uh, who's he, Gary? Go on, who's he? Well, he'd just been promoted to command what remained of the German 7th Army. Lieutenant Hudson, as the intelligence officer, was ordered to take Eberbach back to be interrogated, and his driver... Ken Watson remembered it well, and this is Lance Corporal Ken Watson of HQ Squadron. When they captured the
2: German General Eberbach, we had to take him back to Brigade Headquarters. He was a very surly sort of (laughs) gentleman. (laughs) We had him right in the the back of the scout car. This guy's got a scout car, it's not a tank. Uh, Although I think he had his legs inside. I saw three Germans running across the road into the woods. I said to this German General... Tell those men to come out here and get on the back of this scout car. So he did. He spoke English in a broken fashion. These men came out jumped onto the backer and their eyes popped out of the head when they saw the German general. We went across this railway line and I saw a German walking along with his helmet in his hands. We stopped him. I got out of the scout car and had a look. In his helmet he had half a dozen eggs, which I said were mine. And told him to jump on the back of the scout car. We delivered the German general to brigade headquarters. He didn't say goodbye. <laughs> and I like the idea of all these people being tricked into getting in, being prisoners, and then when it went, when he got back to the headquarters of 11th Armour Division, they were extremely rude to Everback.
3: You'll be shocked to know as well. So what's happening now? Well, by 11 o'clock on the 31st of August, the two main bridges over the Somme River had been captured and Amiens was secure. The Germans were in chaos throughout the whole area. After a brief rest on the 1st of September, the mad advance continues, pushing across the Somme and on to Aubigny. And uh, you're going to tell us what Major General Philip, or Pip, Roberts of HQ11th Armoured Division said. (laughs)
2: There we were, just rattling along to places with names like Amiens, Somme, Eaps, and so on, which had become horrifying legends only 25 years earlier, where hundreds of thousands of men, millions even on both sides, slogging it out in muddy trench warfare, had perished. All that ghastly business of going over the top, the barbed wire, the machine gun fire, and yet here we were, just driving through those places.
3: Yeah, we've said this before, haven't we, about the the road through Europe. These place names come up again and again. Again and again and again. (laughs) In the absence of serious German opposition, the 11th Armoured Division were directed to advance on the great Belgian port of Antwerp. Now, Jack Rex remembered one incident that provided him and his crew with a great deal of amusement at the expense of a somewhat pompous German officer – and this is Trooper Jack Rips of HQ Squadron, second Fife and Forfar Yeomanry.
2: Going through a village, an old French woman stopped us. She said, There's a German officer who wants to give himself up. Me and a <laughs> me and a pal of mine, we went upstairs and he was sat in bed. His hat was on the chair and his tunic on the chair back with all these fancy decorations. He said to me in perfect English, And what do you what rank are you to? Why? <laughs> Well, I want to give myself up to someone of my own rank. Well, this lad came from Dundee. He was a real hard nut. He reached by me, grabbed this German officer by the scruff of the neck, threw him downstairs and threw all his clothes through the window and into the street. All the French people were stood in a ring round him while he was putting his trousers on. Jock said to me, The bagger, who does he think he is?
3: Yeah, well, probably often by the sound of your accent. <laughs> the advance for the next couple of days blurred into a roll call of French villages and towns. The occasional skirmish was all that marred their steady progress.
2: Yeah, the French generally overjoyed to see them, but there's there's one aspect as they go through these villages and towns that the soldiers don't like. Uh, One aspect about liberation I suppose. What do you think that might be Gary?
3: I think you're referring to the treatment by members of the French resistance of female collaborators. Not
2: male collaborators, female collaborators that's what I notice and you're going to be Trooper John Buchanan Four Troop A Squadron.
3: It's a shame really. They grabbed the women and uh, put them out in the middle of the street, sat them in a chair tied their hands behind their back and then shaved all their hair off because they'd been doing with the Germans, collaborating. But I think I felt kind of sad at that because no matter who you are, the first six weeks, you might hate them. But you've got to live with them. Nature takes its course. These Germans, some of them nice Blondarians. If you're hungry, you'll do anything. They couldn't help themselves.
2: And I think that's a, a reasonable perspective of, of what's happening um, uh, it, it was sad. On 3rd of September 1944, the regiment's following up behind the uh, 3rd Royal Tank Regiment. What that's is it?
3: very easy to say. What do 3rd you know Royal Tank Regiment. <laughs> 3rd, 3rd RTR. Oh, that's even easier to say. Now, they join them to overcome some stiff resistance at Seclin, moving round to the right of the town, while the 3rd RTR... Oh attacked from the left. Shortly afterwards, they crossed the border into Belgium to scenes of great rejoicing. However, they were soon made aware that the Belgian people were starving. And this is Trooper Jeff Eason of the Recce Troop HQ Squadron. These four horses had got
2: caught up in the crossfire and got themselves shot. They were lying in the road. As soon as the last shot died away all the civvies rushed out and in less than 10 minutes all that was was left was a pile of hooves. Never seen anything so quick. There was just a pile of steaming hooves. In other words horse meat.
3: We'll have that. Many of the men remembered this rapid advance as a golden period of their wartime experiences. A sense of their collective achievement The welcome from the civilians and the absence of serious fighting contributed to this. And once more, you're going to be Lance Corporal Roy Valance of 4 Troop A Squadron.
2: The days were full. One started at first light and didn't go into lager until last light. And then you had to bomb up and fill up with petrol. You got very little sleep. We were exhilarated. We thought everything was going well. We were winning the war. It was going to be over casualties at this stage were very light we didn't mind at all i was 21 22 years old it was a great adventure
3: i bet it was actually yeah
2: yeah it was a golden period well you know they're not getting killed they're 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 doing everything you could do yeah
3: still they pushed on 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 on. on, until they reached antwerp (laughs) on the 4th of september that was the real target It was essential to capture the port and its logistical infrastructure intact, as the British supply lines were severely overstretched, reaching as they did all the way back to far off... Normandy! How far's that, Gary? Exactly. Well, indeed, since they'd crossed the Seine, they'd advanced some 340 miles. That's
2: after the sense. So, oh, wow, it's a long long way. Now, most of the... Uh, well, what do you think about this? I mean, most of the German... Con- you know, the much-vaunted Blitzkrieg of May 1940.
3: What's happened to all those... Well, they've, they've all been reclaimed. It's a magnificent achievement by the 11th Armoured Division as a whole.
2: Now, on entering the city, the 2nd, five and four are Yeomley. Oh, 3rd Royal Tank
3: Regiment, never mind, uh, were deployed alongside 159 Brigade. Uh, what are they doing? They're clearing up the remaining pockets of German resistance in the city. Now, that's quite a tricky business, as Lance Corporal Roy Valence goes on to say. On the outskirts of Antwerp,
2: we were met by huge crowds of people, cheering us on, pressing drinks on us. We were, we were in one street, being mobbed, and then we were told to advance, which we did with difficulty, because of all the civilians all over the tanks can't run them over can you they're they're on our side anyway he says we went round the corner and there was hardly a soul in sight and we were fired upon immediately the contrast was enormous we were being sniped from a large factory building i put an he high explosive shell through every window in the side of the factory that was looking at
3: us what a contrast you know think about that yeah we're in this street and we've got civilians all over the tank go round the corner Fired upon. Bang, yeah. Now, the British found that the Antwerp docks were almost undamaged, which, given their obvious value to the British, seemed to indicate how the sheer speed of the advance had indeed wrong-footed the Germans. Now, there was some resistance,
2: Gary. You you, you mustn't overlook the minor resistance. That that was centred round Central
3: Park. Uh, Now, why was there a problem there? Well, the Germans had built a system of linked concrete pillboxes and deep dugouts. Did it work? Well, no, no. I mean, the presence of the Sea Squadron tanks seems to have uh, intimidated the garrison, who surrendered after a short exchange of fire. Yeah, so they they knew they couldn't win. They have a few shots, yeah. give up. The regiment was in a lager to the south of Antwerp, where much valuable maintenance and repair work was carried out over the next couple of now, days.
2: They need that because after after an advance like that, they have these mechanical things uh, things go wrong.
3: Uh, yeah, have they got any duties to perform otherwise? Absolutely. There were still tank patrols sent out into the city. Uh, guards were set up on possible canal crossings. And there was also a brief abortive attempt to cross the meurs Escout Canal to the north of the city. That,
2: that didn't really work, did it? Because the, they got a bit of a bri- bridgehead, but it was just way too insecure. To, to, to be- You need a proper bridgehead. Uh, uh, and it, they abandoned it. Um, what do you notice about, as they're moving into Belgium, as they're approaching the Meurs-Escart Canal, what do you Gary, notice?
3: Well, I noticed that the German resistance had at last uh, beginning uh, begun to stiffen. They are getting more and more resistance as they're progressing nearer and near Germany. Is the war not going to end in 1944 then? We'll have to wait and see, Pete. I'm, I'm quite
2: excited about the whole thing. You're just excitable, Pete. If you want to know more, you can always buy my book, which is called Burning Steel. Yeah, it's great. Well, I like it. <laughs> You're not biased, are you? I am biased. All right. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show.
3: Blah
2: blah blah. If you'd like to support blah, blah. us, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, blah. Visit www. www.buymeacoffee.com
3: backslash pgmh. Or Visit www.blah, blah, 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 blah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
3: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at BuyMeACoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast.